We all need to laugh. We choose truth over facts. And now for a perpetual political protest in progress. Judge my physical, mental, filth, my physical as well as my mental fitness. Coffee time. And welcome to the Amalcan Coffee Social Club special episode number three with David Ignell. And we are, uh, for those of you just catching up, we are talking about his book, dealing with the uh, grand jury, the history of grand juries, and how that specifically, uh, that topic uh, uh, should be applied or studied in relation to the Alaska grand jury system. And uh, I, I Every time I play that bumper music and I, I listen to uh, our illustrious uh, president uh, bumble his words along, I, I feel like, you know, he could use a, a strong cup of coffee. So uh, <laughs> welcome back to the, the mic, uh, David. And uh, again, I appreciate your willingness to be a road warrior, as it were, uh, reading uh, long passages in your book, which all built like a pyramid on a strong foundation, lead to a, a climactic uh, conclusion we will uh, uh, hit in uh, uh, chapter 14. But before we jump into chapter 3 here, uh, you want to give us a, a quick sort of recap on, on what has preceded this episode so that those who are just joining us will kind of get a flavor for what's going on and be encouraged to go and listen to those two episodes uh, uh, as, as they're able. Yeah. Thanks, Jason. Um, you know, so my, we, we're going in a chronological fashion here. Uh, chapter one, you know, looked at the first uh, five or 600 years of the, uh, the establishment of the grand jury, which is so important because, that's where so many important uh, principles of the grand jury are, are based on. Uh, chapter two, uh, you know, we covered the, uh, uh, the grand jury uh, crosses the pond from England to uh, America, and it's established here, and, and it's expanded into uh, civil matters as well. Uh, in England, it was just criminal, uh, but over in America, it's ex expanded to civil and civic matters and, you know, people making sure that uh, government is run correctly. Uh, and, and we also saw in Chapter 2 how uh, the grand juries played a very important part in our independence uh, from England. And, uh, you know, where grand juries would, would uh, refuse to indict uh, citizens on laws that they felt were, were unjust. Uh, and then we took a quick look at the distinction between the federal and the state grand juries, uh, you know, starting back after uh, the United States was founded and, and the important distinction between those. So now we're going to progress uh, chronologically into Chapter 3, which is uh, a growing nation uh, where there's a lot of Im immigrants coming over to America. Our territory is expanding westward, and we're starting to see both big government and big business uh, through monopolies. And uh, Chapter 3 is one of the shortest uh, chapters in my, in my book. Uh, and basically, it's just it's to provide 
readers and listeners with an example of the types of things that uh, grand juries in the United States have looked at over the years. Uh, and, you know, what falls under this definition of general welfare uh, that we see in the Alaska Constitution? And this ties into what I talked about in my introduction, uh, which is something that uh, Alaska delegate uh, John Hellenthal uh, said back in 1956, that the grand juries can investigate anything. And I suspect that, that Mr. Hellenthal when he said that to the rest of the delegates, he was thinking of many of the of the examples that we're going to uh, talk about today. Uh, so, unless you have any further questions, I'll 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 begin. I'd say go ahead and launch. Okay, Chapter Three: Industrial America, protecting the public from corrupt government and big business. Towards the end of the nineteenth century. As the United States accelerated its transition into an industrial powerhouse, grand juries adapted to the changing environment. As more immigrants arrived, urban centers grew in population and wealth. Some governments attracted opportunists and politicians who saw opportunities to make a career out of applying power to benefit their own interests over the people. As the size of governments increased, these officials became increasingly insulated from the public. Some of them banded together to manipulate businesses, loot city treasuries, or promote criminal behavior they benefited from. Well-organized political machines were developed that made it difficult to oust ethically challenged officials from control. It was in the grand jury that ordinary citizens often found their most potent weapon to protect the public's welfare welfare, and to rescue their cities from government incompetence and abuse of power. Similarly, as corporations and industrial trusts grew more powerful, American grand juries proved to be a capable watchdog of illegal or inappropriate business practices that negatively impacted the public. Banking failures were a common occurrence towards the start of the 20th century. So grand juries investigated bank closures and suggested remedies. Monopolistic practices of companies and industries that provided basic goods and services to the public, such as insurance, energy, farm machinery, cigarettes, also attracted the attention of local grand juries. Even labor disputes grew grand jury scrutiny. In the burgeoning practice of political bonding among corporate and government leaders, valuable gas, street railway, and other franchises were often bought and sold in ways that harmed the public's welfare. Corporations and trusts, which benefited from biased decisions of government officials, threw their financial support behind candidates which catered to them. The public grew increasingly helpless. Elected officials at the top of the chain developed the ways and means of, in, of unduly influencing lower-level employees below them. A culture of, to get ahead, you have to go along, developed within many administrations, paralyzing internal self-correction. Some governments began to serve themselves rather than the people. Citizens concerned with the general welfare of the public found that grand jury investigations and reports 
were often their only effective recourse for promoting the public's welfare. Moving in chronological order from the late 19th through mid-20th century, the following excerpts from Mr. Younger's book demonstrate a remarkable variety of public concerns that American grand juries began investigating and reporting on. These examples are important in helping Alaskans understand the common law powers of the Alaska grand jury. They provide significant texture to Delegate Hellenthal's statements during the Alaska Constitutional Convention, discussed later in Chapter 8, that, quote, the grand jury can investigate anything, unquote, and, quote, in the history of the United States, there have been few runaway grand juries, extremely few, and I think that the broad statement of power that Mr. Barr asked for is proper and healthy, unquote. These examples help support the conclusion in Chapter 10 that the criticism heaped on the Juneau Grand Jury's report by Mr. Sheffield's lawyers and certain Alaska legislators was unequivocally unfounded. These examples also help support the conclusions in chapters 11 through 13 that the subsequent views and actions taken by the Alaska legislature, the Alaska Judicial Council, and the Alaska court system to diminish the grand jury's constitutionally protected reporting powers of official misconduct were completely inappropriate. In 1877, a railroad labor strike in Pittsburgh resulted in the Pennsylvania State Militia firing into a crowd and killing 28 people. A mob of 4,000 workers retaliated against the militia, resulting in significant destruction to railroad property. A judge asked a county grand jury to investigate which issued subpoenas for several high-ranking state officials, including the governor, secretary of state, and adjutant general. After a month-long investigation, the grand jury issued a report finding that the blame for the incident primarily fell on railroad and government officials. The grand jury report denounced the role of the militia as a blunder from first to last, culminating in the wanton murder of 28 people while also censuring the strikers for their lack of respect for lawful authority. In 1890, several large New York City banks abruptly went out of business. Following an investigation by the local grand jury, it issued a public report denouncing the bold and reckless financial dealings of bank officials. The report warned the public that New York state banking laws were hopelessly inadequate as officers could transfer the entire capital stock of their bank without notifying stockholders or depositors. The grand jury called attention to redressing state laws that provided no criminal remedy for fraudulent banking operations. In 1893, a St. Paul, Minnesota grand jury uncovered procedures, quote, almost criminal in their nature in connection with bank failures there. Their report called for legislation to rescue banking from its deplorable condition. That same year, a Fargo, North Dakota grand jury denounced local bankers for engaging in improper practices. Following up on findings three years previously, a New York grand jury demanded, quote, radical changes, unquote, in the system of bank examinations, finding the work of most state examiners, quote, insufficient and misleading, unquote. In 
1894, a Colorado Springs grand jury investigated a mining labor strike and indicted 37 of the strikers on charges of riot. It also rebuked the governor and adjutant general for interfering with the sheriff's attempt to restore order. In 1897, 3,000 striking coal workers clashed with the sheriff's posse in Pennsylvania, resulting in the death of 19 miners and wounding of 40 others. The grand jury investigating the incident found the sheriff was to blame and indicted him and his men for murder. When decisions by the United States Supreme Court weakened federal antitrust protections against harmful business monopolies, local grand juries throughout the country stepped into the void. In 1896, a New York grand jury investigated allegations that the American Tobacco Company was restraining and preventing competition in the supply and price of cigarettes. In 1899, a local judge asked the grand jury of Covington, Kentucky, to investigate monopolistic activities because there was, quote, little likelihood the McKinley administration will destroy the trust, unquote. The judge complained the attorney general tasked with destroying the trust, quote, owes every dollar he ever had in his life trust, unquote, and was owned by them. In 1901, a Minneapolis, Minnesota grand jury took on widespread municipal corruption where the city had become controlled by a mayor who possessed an inexplicable power over a large number of voters who believed he was for the people. The mayor's brother was the police chief, and together they had established a lucrative system of profiting from the activities of conmen, gambling dens, brothels, and saloons. In their operation, police officers were required to pay monthly fees to keep their jobs while forbidden to make certain arrests. Prostitutes were required to pay fines each month. The proactive Minneapolis grand jury took the proverbial bull by the horns. They didn't sit back and wait for evidence to trickle into them. The grand jurors split up to avoid attention and went out on the town to investigate. When the county attorney became non-cooperative and tried to stop the investigations, the grand jury disregarded his instructions. When prosecutors refused to work any further, the grand jury hired its own detectives. It took two years in the impaneling of two separate grand juries, but eventually the corrupt municipal leaders were brought to justice and a moral law and order reemerged in the city. The local Minneapolis newspaper applauded the grand jury, writing their actions had, quote, made a political revolution by the orderly processes of law, unquote. In 1902, coal shortages throughout the United States set off a series of local grand jury investigations. A Delaware County, Ohio grand jury forced retail dealers to disband their coal exchange. In Chicago, the city council asked the grand jury to investigate an acute coal shortage, which then discovered a dealer's plot to set minimum prices and destroy all competition. In Toledo, Ohio, the grand jury charged dealers with criminal conspiracy, while in Cleveland, retailers dissolved their association rather than face a grand jury probe. In 1906, large campaign contributions by insurance companies drew protests, leading to a grand jury investigation of New York life. 
falsified records and dummy transactions were found, leading to several indictments of well-connected officials. The following year, the grand jury investigated Metropolitan Life, finding a series of security manipulations designed to mislead the public of its true financial condition and a double set of books hiding loans to executives at low rates. More indictments and more investigations of other insurance companies followed. Between 1905 and 1907, county grand juries throughout Kentucky investigated International Harvester Company and the monopoly they held upon the farm machinery business. Two counties indicted the corporation for attempting to fix prices, while four other counties hauled the company into court for violations of the state antitrust laws. In 1906, a grand jury from Hancock County, Ohio, took on monolithic Standard Oil Company, investigating it for violating the Ohio antitrust laws. The grand jury returned 939 separate indictments for attempting to force competitors out of business. In 1908, a grand jury in Sioux County, Iowa, follows suit and investigated Standard Oil for cutting prices in the town of Alton. They found the corporation had used the same tactics to destroy competition in their county. After 20 years of failed attempts, in 1906, San Francisco grand juries were finally able to break through decades of widespread municipal corruption there. A political machine, partially funded by the Southern Pacific Railroad, controlled almost every part of the local government, including some judges and at times even the selection of the local grand jurors. The San Francisco political machine had even received assistance from the California Supreme Court, which issued rulings restricting the grand jury's efforts. The logjam began to break when a citizens' committee headed by a crusading newspaper editor, influential civic leaders, and an honest district attorney were able to persuade a judge to discharge a controlled grand jury and select a new panel with the help of a special prosecutor and detective. The political machine responded by trying to oust the district attorney and appointing one from their own ranks. In a courtroom hearing that drew a large public audience, the judge instructed the grand jury to act without fear, favor, or affection, saying there is, quote, no higher duty devolved on a citizen, unquote. The San Francisco grand jurors succeeded in drawing out confessions of some officials by offering them immunity from prosecution, and the corrupt structure began to crumble. A local newspaper lauded the grand jury as a, quote, most ancient and important factor in our legal and civic life. Upon it, the community depends for legal, honest, and disinterested investigation, unquote. In 1913, the milk and cream industry caught the scrutiny of a grand jury in Hennepin County, Minnesota. After their investigation, the grand jury indicted six corporations and eight individuals, finding they controlled a large percentage of the trade in milk and cream in Minneapolis. That control had enabled the monopolists to prevent competition and raise the price of these commodities, thereby harming the public's welfare. In the early 1920s, an Oklahoma grand jury probing state corruption was about to indict 21 officials when the judge dismissed the jury. 
Aroused citizens responded by petitioning for another panel to complete the investigation. In 1923, the chief of police, a judge, and two county commissioners resigned when a local grand jury in Kansas City launched an investigation into rumored corruption. In 1929, a Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania grand jury recommended legislation to end fraudulent assessment of taxes and illegal registration of voters. They concluded that the only concern of many commissioners was, quote, drawing their salaries, unquote. That same year, a grand jury probe in Philadelphia led to a complete reorganization of the police department. In 1933, an Atlanta, Georgia grand jury threatened to indict the county commissioners if they did not institute reforms. When the judge rebuked the grand jurors for their efforts, the citizens organized the Grand Jurors Association to encourage future panels to uphold their inquisitorial rights. In 1933, a Cleveland, Ohio grand jury began a probe of the city police department, eventually issuing a report that announced the entire city had been intimidated by union racketeers who received protection from city officials. They, they declared the local criminal court, quote, neither merits nor receives the respect or confidence of the people, unquote. The grand jury criticized the prosecutor's office saying its talent was well below par and chiding the Cleveland Bar Association for its lack of concern. In 1936, a Boston, Massachusetts grand jury reported that school commissioners were guilty of selling promotions and appointments. In San Francisco, and 30 years after the grand jury's initial unraveling of widespread municipal corruption there, the local grand jury found that inefficiency and corruption had reinfiltrated the city police. A special panel in Buffalo, New York, exposed bribery and fraud in the municipal government. A Miami, Florida panel found that bribery had played an important role in establishing electric rates. A Greensboro, North Carolina grand jury initiated an inquiry into a primary election and reported on many irregularities to the people. In 1937, a Philadelphia grand jury commenced a 17-month-long investigation against vice and racketeering. In addition to over 100 indictments for gambling and prostitution, it called for the immediate dismissal of 41 police officers on grounds of inefficiency and dishonesty. When state officials withdrew financial support to halt further exposures, the grand jury appealed directly to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, which allowed them to continue. The panel recommended a complete reorganization of the police department and even called out the district attorney, accusing him of using the investigation for political purposes. The foregoing examples are just a sampling of the grand jury's important contributions to the public welfare throughout America. Imagine how much worse off citizens in America would be today without those common law powers to investigate and report. That's the end of chapter three. So for those of you who did not hear the uh, podcast that David recorded prior to this series with uh, David Haig, 
Um, I highly encourage you go listen to that podcast because David Haig uh, has been a champion for the restoration of Alaska's grand jury system for quite some time now. And uh, he's picked up that torch because of injustice that was done to him and his family by officials uh, in the state of Alaska. And so as we hear all of these examples of official corruption in police departments, municipalities, and the bureaucracy, uh, you know, it it might be easy to distance ourselves from those things because, you know, uh, we don't, we don't really, most of us have the time to be watching the courts and, and uh, see what, what's happening. And, and many of us, um, you know, are just content to grow our families and live our lives and try to make a community a better place. But the reality is, is that evil can creep in anywhere. And that uh, in Alaska, we are no exception. And I would, I would posit the, the personal opinion that um, we actually uh, have a quite colorful history of corruption in this state, uh, beginning with the earliest uh, visitors to its shores and continuing on through the various boom and bust cycles of our economy. Um, you know, cash is king in Alaska, and where there's cash, uh, there are those who want to get it. And uh, power and access uh, corrupt and absolute power, absolute access, corrupt absolutely. I was taking a little artistic, I guess, uh, poetic license there. But um, I look forward to the next installment. Um, as folks are uh, listening to this, please know that if you're not already connected to a group in your community that is taking this issue up, know that there is growing uh, concern across the state. I heard a statistic I, while David was reading. I was trying to find it uh, online. I, I, I'll have to keep looking. But I had heard a statistic that said that in our, in our uh, cyclical retention of judges uh, through the ballot box, um, typically about 10% of voters in our state vote no on retaining uh, judges. And uh, the statistic I recently heard, again, I can't verify it yet, but uh, that this year was an exception in that something like 30% of people voted no. Uh, It seems that, uh, at least anecdotally, there is a growing uh, discomfort with our judicial system and how it meets out justice or hears uh, the... uh, statements of prosecutors and, and deals with people who are under question. And so um, just uh, any, any follow-up, David? Well, it's, you know, it's interesting what you said there just now, Jason. I, I looked at, uh, I was looking at some of the election results uh, that were published by the Division of Election when it was, I think, 90% reported. And, and I noted that, what you just said about the judicial retention. I, I think there was many places where it was almost 40 percent opposed. And and people need to keep in mind that, uh, you know, it's the Judicial Council that is kind of deciding whether to, you know, give them a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And so you have a biased group. I mean, these are the people that appointed them in the first place for political purposes. And, you know, are are, are they grading them for, you know, their their uh, willingness to follow the the political machine or or what but you know despite 
these, uh, you know, recommendations by the Judicial Council, as you pointed out, uh, you may have 30 to, to 40 percent uh, of citizens that are that are voting no. So, yes, I mean, this is what I've seen over the last month or so of talking to people is that there is uh, growing discontent uh, with our judicial uh, system. And, and that makes sense when you have a Supreme Court that, uh, you know, overrules or, or ignores the Constitution on multiple occasions, which is something that I hope to be writing about here in the, new fu- in, in the near future. You know, uh, so you know, yes. it's it's interesting when we look when we look to uh, other examples in history. You know, uh, one of the, I guess, <laughs> the dominant example in my mind would be uh, the Israelites, uh, as recorded in the Bible, and their history is full of these uh, sort of Renaissance periods where their minds are uh, focused as a nation, and they're focused towards. Uh, adhering to their laws and their their customs, their traditions, their faith. And uh, when they do that, they prosper. And then as they allow corruption to creep into the society, uh, the society crumbles. And you can you can watch over and over and over again throughout the the recorded history of of that nation, of those people, um, the, the sort of the cyclical um, uh, theme. Of, of rise and collapse and rise and collapse uh, of systems and morality and um, uh, corruption and, and uh, righteousness. And uh, from your reading of uh, in the last two chapters, that's, that has been a theme that has been emerging in my mind that, you know, as I said before, it seems that this, this idea of the grand jury is balanced on the head of a pen and it, it requires continual maintenance and that uh, if we neglect our duties as uh, our civic duty uh, to be informed, to talk to our neighbors, to engage in the system, to call for the process to be uh, restored or upheld, uh, we will find ourselves in one of these downward cycles, one of these downward trends where we can expect more corruption and less representation and really a le- less reflection of our values as a society in the systems that were designed to serve us. And we end up becoming the servants of those systems conversely through under uh, tyrannical rule. And so um, it, it, very interesting, very interesting. Um, I yeah, mean, no, that's, that's, that's absolutely right. And uh, you know, as I was reading this, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of David Hague case. I'm thinking of all the citizens who I've heard uh, that have expressed concerns about our election process. Um, You know, the the grand jury needs to get back into, uh, you know, the normal, you know, just ordinary conversations. If, If citizens have a legitimate concern about something, take it to the grand jury. Uh, what, what this chapter shows is that it's the grand jury, you know, whether it's election fraud or whether it's, uh, you know, uncompetitive trade practices. I mean, how, how many times living in Southeast Alaska do I hear complaints about freight charges? Um, you know, that doesn't mean that those freight charges are illegitimate, but, you know, you don't know if they are. And, and the point here is it's not for the government to investigate these things for us. Uh, because there's politics involved. 
the, the point is, is that it's for the grand jury to investigate these things, uh, whether it's whether it's our elections, whether it's uh, schools, uh, whether, you know, grand juries used to investigate the, the county jails, even in Alaska. The first 20 years, there was a lot of grand juries that would do an annual audit of the of the county jails or, or the local jails. So why shouldn't grand juries do an audit of elections Uh-oh. if so many people are concerned about? Oh, do you, you hear know? that? Do you hear that sound? I hear oh, the sound okay. of, of shaking <laughs> people. I, 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 I hear the sound of many bloodsuckers shaking in their boots. Of course, bloodsuckers being ticks and uh, many being poly. Uh, those in politics who desire to expand their uh, power and control over us should be worried because as more people become educated and informed, the boy king will become a man and the Alaska grand jury will rise to prominence and dominance again. So we look forward to catching you in the next installment. Chapter four should be riveting, I'm sure. Thank you, David, again for your time. We'll see you on the flip side. Thank you, Jason.